This is Dr. Sean Canone, and welcome to our clinical podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our conversation on anticholinergic drugs. If you recall from last episode, we had begun a discussion on overactive bladder and thinking about some of the positive ways we could use anticholinergic medications to help our patients. If you recall, we first began by talking about normal bladder physiology and the role of acetylcholine in urination. Then we talked about some of the potential positives of using an anticholinergic drug in a patient with overactive bladder or urinary incontinence. We then spent the remainder of our time looking at a case study of a patient of mine from many years ago who has prescribed an anticholinergic drug inappropriately for his urinary incontinence, and we saw that from that inappropriate prescribing, this cascade of problems that ensued, including UTIs, urosepsis, delirium, hospitalizations, and eventually the prescribing of antipsychotic drugs. In this episode, we want to dive deeper into these pharmacological treatment options for overactive bladder and or urinary incontinence. It is really important to understand the risk that overactive bladder presents to our patients to know that there is significant benefit in treating and addressing overactive bladder, but we still have to respect the potential for adverse events that can come with many of these medications. So hopefully you'll have a greater comfort level in approaching patients who have overactive bladder or urinary incontinence after today's episode. First, let's begin by looking at urinary incontinence, which is one of the leading causes of long-term care placement. It's been estimated that somewhere between 50 and 80% of patients in long-term care facilities have some degree of urinary incontinence, and that patients with urinary incontinence consume up to 80% of a nurse's aide's time. There are several types or etiologies of urinary incontinence, including stress, overflow, functional incontinence, but the most common is urge incontinence coming from overactive bladder. This accounts for somewhere between 40 and 70% of all urinary incontinence. The most common symptom of overactive bladder is urgency. There can also be frequency and nocturia associated with OAB, but you don't have to have urinary incontinence. And it's very important at this point to say that when we're thinking of pharmacological treatment options, They are for overactive bladder, not necessarily for urinary incontinence. As I just mentioned, there are several different etiologies or types of urinary incontinence, but it's only overactive bladder that we're addressing with these medications. Overactive bladder is characterized by a sudden strong desire to void and by urination at least eight times per day and or twice during the night. The risk factors for OAB are varied. There's a three times increased risk if you're a Caucasian, if you're a diabetic on insulin, or if you have depression. Your risk for OAB increases by about one and a half times if your age is over 75, if you have arthritis, an increased BMI, a history of hysterectomy, or COPD. There are several management options for overactive bladder, including lifestyle changes, modification of voiding habits, bladder and pelvic muscle training, as well as pharmacological approaches. The pharmacological management of OAB has typically consisted of anticholinergic drugs, and by now you know that there are dangers associated with anticholinergic prescribing in the elderly. There was once a question asked by a physician in the Annals of Long-Term Care. His question was, 
are cholinesterase inhibitors of any value in patients with dementia who are taking medications with anticholinergic effects, such as those used to manage urinary incontinence? That's a really great question because we know that these anticholinergic drugs have the potential to block muscarinic receptors, and we know that from studies dating back even to 2006, that anticholinergic drugs being used for overactive bladder can impair cognition in these elderly patients. So why not just stop the conversation right here and determine not to use these medications to treat overactive bladder in the elderly? And the reason is because the risk of falls and fractures is substantially high in patients with overactive bladder. For instance, there was a study published back in 2000 in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. It was a study looking at 6,000 community-dwelling women and finding that those with overactive bladder had a 26% risk of falls and a 34% risk of fractures compared to those with stress incontinence having a risk of falls of 6%, a risk of fractures of 1%. Why is there such a disparity? Because overactive bladder creates an urge. And when patients sense that urge, they start heading to the restroom. And when they hurry to the restroom to avoid an incontinence episode, they are at high risk for fall and fracture. Those with stress incontinence have an unpredictable event. They lift something up, they cough, they sneeze, and they have an incontinence episode. Those come without warning and without that sense to get to the restroom quickly. So what does this mean? It means that patients in nursing homes who have overactive bladder or an urge to urinate, whether they have incontinence or not, are going to be at a higher risk for falls and fractures as they sometimes get up without assistance to try to get to the bathroom. If you want to reduce fall and fracture rates in nursing homes, you have to address overactive bladder. I was reviewing a lawsuit many years ago in a nursing home, and it was a lawsuit because a patient had fallen and fractured their hip. When I went into the investigation follow-up, I found the following documentation that really drives home the point that we're trying to make today. The nurse had written that this resident climbed out of bed, walked across the room, and then fell landing on her right side. The resident was confused, secondary to dementia, but able to feel the urge to void. That becomes the most dangerous combination from a fall and fracture risk standpoint. It's the patient who feels the urge to void and remembers that they go to the restroom when they feel that urge, but they don't remember to ask for assistance or help because of their cognitive impairment. In another nursing statement, it was said that this patient was found lying on their right side by the bathroom door. They were just toileted 30 minutes before and did not have to urinate. They were found dry, and so was the floor. So as we move into pharmacological treatment options for overactive bladder, remember that we're treating overactive bladder, the urge to urinate, not necessarily whether the patient has urinary incontinence. Historically, there have been five anticholinergic drugs that are indicated and have been used for overactive bladder. These include oxybutynin, which is ditropan, tolteridine, which is detrol, trospium, which is sanctura, solafenacin, which is vesicare, and darafenacin, which is enabilex. In order for these anticholinergic drugs to work, they have to be able to block the muscarinic 3 receptor, which is the predominant cholinergic receptor of the bladder that controls contraction and urination. 
Knowing that each of these medications works by blocking the muscarinic 3 receptor, we can predict their side effects. Because muscarinic 3 receptors are predominant in the mucus or salivary glands, as well as in the bowels, each of these medications will carry risk for dry mouth and for constipation. There's no way around this physiologically. But wouldn't it be nice if we could limit the effects of these anticholinergic drugs to only the muscarinic 3 receptor? One of these five medications is muscarinic 3 receptor selective, and that is darafenacin or Enabilex. The other four are non-selective muscarinic receptor antagonists, which means they can block the muscarinic 1, muscarinic 2, muscarinic 4, and muscarinic 5 receptors in addition to the muscarinic 3 receptor blocking action they have for OAB. Unfortunately, most of our geriatric formularies and nursing home interchanges favor oxybutynin or ditropan as the drug of choice here, and this medication has significant impact of the muscarinic 1 receptor and can cause impairment of cognition very easily. There's actually a very good article published in the European Association of Urology back in 2006 that looks at oxybutynin, or ditropan, extended release, in comparison to Enabilex, or darafenacin, and showing substantial differences in the way these medications impact the muscarinic 1 receptor and cognition. There is also one newer medication on the market that is non-anticholinergic in its approach to treating overactive bladder. It goes by the generic name Mirabigran, or the brand name Merbetric. Merbetric is a beta-3 receptor agonist which relaxes the bladder smooth muscle and increases bladder capacity. Now, Merbetric may allow us to avoid some of the anticholinergic side effects associated with these more traditional approaches to overactive bladder management, it is not without its own issues. Merbetric is a moderate cytochrome P450-2D6 inhibitor. It has a significant drug interaction with metoprolol, and that's the most common beta blocker that we use in the long-term care setting. It is also recommended that we use Merbetric with caution in patients on digoxin and to monitor those levels more closely. Merbetric can increase blood pressure, so monitoring blood pressure regularly in patients with hypertension is very important. And finally, there have been reported cases of angioedema of the face, lips, tongue, or larynx with Berbetric. So use it with caution and watch out for these potential side effects. So as we conclude, it really comes down to treating patients as unique individuals and performing a risk-benefit analysis before prescribing and to monitor our therapy on an ongoing basis for necessity or benefit. We must always keep in mind that these medications are indicated for overactive bladder with or without incontinence, and they should not be used in any other type of urinary incontinence, especially overflow or retention incontinence. The treatment is aimed at reducing the urge that comes with overactive bladder in hopes that by reducing the urge and giving patients more time to get to the restroom, we can reduce their risk of falls and fractures and improve their overall quality of life. The risks of overactive bladder treatment are really obvious, especially when it comes to the anticholinergic drugs, but it is important to note that darafenacin or Enabilex is the only muscarinic 3 selective anticholinergic drug that's indicated for treating overactive bladder. Merbetric is a newer agent on the market, which is non-anticholinergic, has some of its own nuances and its own risks, Please be aware of those as you prescribe 
And note that you can use merbetric in combination with an anticholinergic drug for a more severe case of overactive bladder. In conclusion, urinary incontinence is a leading cause of nursing home placement. Most of this urinary incontinence comes from urge incontinence, which is secondary to overactive bladder, which is extremely prevalent in our population. Sometimes it manifests without any urinary incontinence, and we should always be thinking about the risks of falls and fractures in patients with overactive bladder who sense that urge to urinate. The pharmacological treatment approaches for overactive bladder are typically cost-effective because they do reduce the risk of falls and fractures. The goal is to minimize central anticholinergic side effects by using selective muscarinic antagonists, and the drug selection in overactive bladder must include a good risk-benefit analysis and an ongoing analysis of the effects of the medication to prove their necessity and safety. Well, I hope this topic was beneficial to you and to the patients who you serve. Keep up the good work, and we look forward to the next podcast episode.